Uh, well, are you ready to study the Word of God, yes or no? Good, me too. So let's pray together over it, and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you that you're here with us, and you reside in us. We thank you that you want to teach us and train us this morning, and we want to receive from you. So speak to us now from your word, your words of life, to help us to become more like you, more obedient to you, doing what you've called us to do. Help us to enjoy you and your word and your family. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. <clears throat> Most of you know that uh, I came from... Um, Colorado, Colorado Springs, Colorado. We, we uh, planted out of a church from there and came here uh, almost three years ago. And um, it's been an incredible ride, a great, great journey. I remember when I first came here that I had a, the opportunity to perform a wedding. I didn't know anybody in the city yet, really. We we're just starting to make friends. And I don't even know that we had had our actual official launch yet. And so, uh, but some, so a guy who was on the launch team at that time and helping us in our gold launch church, he had introduced me to a couple of people. He said they really want to get married and, and they're looking for a pastor to do it. Now, they're not really believers, but they, they want to have uh, their wedding ceremony presided over by a pastor. And so I agreed to do it and was looking forward to the opportunity. Now, you got to remember, I came out of Colorado Springs, which now in Colorado Springs, people had kind of... Uh, used the term evangelical Mecca <laughs> to uh, create this new church because there's so many ministries that were there, so many uh, godly places and godly ministries, and it's pretty much like a you know a Christian on every street corner as you walk around, and um, it's very very wonderful, very good city. But I showed up in Austin and found that it was just slightly different here. And so coming here, of course, we had done research. We knew uh, the population and what was going on, and we're not at all ignorant about what we were stepping into, and we were excited about that, but curious of how that would go and knowing what our history and background had so far mostly been. So I remember that I came and we got on the ground here, and I think even before we launched the church, I had the opportunity through some One Chapel folks who were on the launch team, and the opportunity to perform a wedding. These two individuals, they weren't believers, but they were looking for a pastor who would help them. And I thought, what a great example, what a great moment for me to be a light for Jesus and to marry these two. So I prepared and got ready. I called them up. We, <clears throat> we really never met before that, but we talked a few times over the phone. I went to a high-rise in downtown Austin, showed up, and I looked around the room. And the guy who was part of one chapel at the time, he he kind of walked me around the room and said, okay, just so you know, these are our friends, and they had a whole bunch of friends downtown, and they, they said, and these guys over here, these guys are the atheists, so they don't believe in God at all. Uh, these guys are agnostics, so they're not quite sure yet right now. Uh, these guys are, they're the Buddhist family over here, and he just kind of went around the room like that. And of course, my first natural thought was, I am certainly not in Kansas anymore. Life has changed now for me. And, uh, and I was thankful for that because over the course of the next several minutes, 15 to 20 minutes, I got to perform this ceremony and I got to make much of Jesus. And I got to talk about him and his love for the church and how that correlates. And so we had this great experience. And then at the end of that time, wondering what all these people were thinking during those moments, 
so many of them came up to me and said, that was one of the most beautiful services I have ever been to. And there was no music. There was no, it was in a little condominium in a high rise that was empty, no furniture, no nothing. It was a group of people that had gathered in this living room to marry these two folks and celebrate that. And I talked about Jesus and they said, that was so incredible and so beautiful. I have never heard that before. And I was so thankful for that opportunity. And you know, this is why we're having this discussion. It's why we're going through this series that we've been going through called Conversations. And it's in preparation to prepare ourselves for what's coming up here after this next series. We'll be exploring God. I'm sure you've seen the, the billboards and you've seen them around the city. And we're going to be talking about how to open up spiritual conversations with other people without taking our dogmatic stance to try to make them think what we think. That's not what this is about. This is about us being compelled by the love of Christ to share the truths that we know whilst listening to what they think as well. Rather than plugging our ears as we've sometimes as the church been accused of and doing this, I don't want to hear you. I'm not interested. It's not the truth. And that is correct. However, because we do believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that nobody can come to the Father but through him. And I know it's kind of crazy because when, when they hear us say it, and even some of you who are sitting here today, when you hear us say things like that, you think, how intolerant, how judgmental, how disturbing. It's not right, but here's the thing. We have met with Jesus, and he's transformed, and he's changed our lives and we know that he is the way and the truth and the life. We know what he's done. We know about his work on the cross. And it's not that we're judgmental. It's not that we're critical. It's not that we're intolerant. The truth is, if we really believe in Jesus, then we can't just continue our lives in silence. That's just the facts of it. If we truly believe that he loves the world, like we say he loves the world, we can't continue in silence. If we truly believe that he died on the cross, how dare we sit back and not open our mouths about it and discuss it? Not looking for one conversation where we're gonna make you believe what I think. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm just saying, if we actually believe it, it's time for us, even though we're nervous, to open up the conversation and to have it. We talked about that quite a bit over last week, so I'm not going to dive back into that. <clears throat> but I want you to have that context for today, for these next few moments. Because overall, you know, I sent you, I sent you uh, some of the notes because I didn't finish last week. And so I sent home an email and I had four kind of closing points. And hopefully you took the time to read them. I'm not going to go over them. And I hope that they're helpful to some of you. But this is what I want you to realize overall that I was aiming at with those four points. That I believe that the responsibility for the outcome of the conversation that we have, that responsibility is not ours. The outcome of the, the conversation, the outcome belongs to him. The outcome belongs to Jesus. It belongs to the Holy Spirit. It belongs to his conviction at work. And then it depends on whether or not those individuals are going to choose to say yes or choose to say no as he continues to work. But the thing that we must not do is say, well, you're not going to think what I think, obviously, so this friendship is over. <laughs> How ridiculous that is. 
And sometimes we've been accused of handling people that way and treating them like evangelistic projects. And I don't want us to do that. I want us to be motivated by our love, by Christ's love that compels us to share. So the responsibility for the outcome isn't ours, but the responsibility to take the first step, I think, is ours. The responsibility to step out and ask God to do something in faith, I think, is ours. I want to read this passage of scripture, Ephesians 6, 19 through 20, to you as we start off today. Ephesians 6, 19 through 20, it's Paul writing, and here's what he says. Now listen close. He says, pray also for me. Pray for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains and pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. There's a few things that jump out at me immediately when I read through this passage. And I think it's good for us to pause here and consider who Paul is. Paul, he, would, he kind of talked about himself as, say, a, a Pharisee among Pharisees. He knew the law. He was well-trained. He knew. He had studied. Even before the Holy Spirit would breathe through him to write down two-thirds or so of the New Testament, he could write down some great theology. He knew the law. He was familiar with the prophets. He knew what he was talking about. But he says these words. I want you to pray for me that whenever I speak, words might be given me. Consider then who else Paul is. Paul's the guy who was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was persecuted. He was stoned, not medicinally, but with actual rocks. He was this guy who had gone through so many things. I was like, what? What did he say? Medicine? Oh, I see what you did there. Uh, he had gone through so much. And even he says, look, pray for me. Pray for me that I could proclaim it fearlessly, that I would have the words to be able to say it. So three things that I noticed right away as I read this this week. Number one, that Paul wasn't sure what to say. He didn't always know what to say, just like you and just like me. So he's asking his community of faith, would you pray with me that I'd have the words to be able to say them? Secondly, he's saying, uh, I'm somewhat fearful. I mean, I, he's saying, I pray for me that I could do it fearlessly. What does that say to you? It says to me that he deals with some degree of fear, just like you and I do today. And thirdly, he, say, he knows that he needs the community to be able to do it. He understands that he's not alone as he sets out to do it. He understands that it's not just his job to walk out alone and make these things happen. It's not just him going out to have the conversations. It's not just him that's trying to write letters and spread them to the churches and encourage them. But he has God at his side working within him. He has the Holy Spirit. He has all of these things available to him and he has a community that's with him to encourage him. You, my friends, have all those things with you. So I look at it and say, if Paul struggled with those things, I'm okay. I'm okay with having some struggles in this thing. And I want you to be encouraged by those dynamics today. So I want to share with you just a few things 
Three stories, if I can make it through them. I want to share some of my favorite stories that have to do with individuals in Scripture taking one unknown step. Because again, the responsibility for the outcome doesn't belong to you. Those belong to God. But the responsibility for you is to take the first step to see him do something. See, I think it's when we provide that first one step, and it can be a small step. One small step gives him the ability to use us. It offers something to him. I'm afraid that sometimes we just kind of stand still hoping that something's going to happen when he's saying, just work with me. See, direction requires movement. Things don't really move very easy until they start going forward. So as you take a step forward, now you can begin to move and the Spirit of God can begin to move you and help you to know where to go. Direction requires us to move. So I want three stories today, if we have the time. Maybe we'll get to one, maybe we'll get to two. But I want to tell you some scripture stories of people that took a step knowing that they had people behind them, people in their corner to help them, and understanding that though the outcome wasn't clear, that Jesus was there working on their behalf. So the first story comes from 1 Samuel chapter 14. Turn there quickly if you can. 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to start, I think, in uh, verse 1. Let's do it this way. 1 Samuel 14 verse 1. Here we go. Are you ready? You okay? You ready? Three people, totally ready. Everybody else, not ready. No, no, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. Okay, now I'm ready. First Samuel 14, one day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he didn't tell his father, Saul the king. Now you can think of this in context of the ongoing skirmishes and, and the war between the Israelites and the Philistines. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, and it goes through, and, and it talks some about that. Let's skip down just a little bit. Go to verse 6. It says, Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men, just the two of them. Now, here it comes. Are you ready? This is the step. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. <laughs> Perhaps. Hey, let's go over to the Philistines. Maybe. God will do something. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to go to war, I'd like a little more than a maybe, perhaps. Just a little bit more. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. In other words, God can save, whether there's a whole bunch of us or it's just you and me, bro. God can do it. Great faith in him. So verse 7 he has his armor bearer who says, do all that you have in mind. Listen, if you don't have people in your life that say those kinds of things to you, when you say, I want to take a step for God, then you need some new people in your life. I'm not saying you got to ditch all the old ones, but you need some people who are going to say that to you. You want to do something for God? You go do everything that you've got in your heart to do because I'm right behind you. So in verse 8, Jonathan said, come on then. There it is, the first step. 
Come on then, we'll cross over toward them. We'll let them see us. If they say to us, wait there till we come to you, we'll stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we'll climb up because that's gonna be our sign the Lord has given them into our hands. And so they go over, they call out to them. They say, hey, come on up. So they go up and the two of them, they kill 20 men. In that period. And of course, that wakes up everybody else. And there's a great thing and a great confusion going on with the Philistine army. And so they're all starting to get up and swing swords, and the Israelites hear it. And they all come knowing that God is doing something. And that battle ends with tons of Philistines being wiped out. Because one guy said, Hey, let's go over and let's give God something to work with. One small step. And his armor bearer who said, Hey, Whatever you got to do, whatever in your heart, I'm going to support you and go do it with you. This is what you have, folks. Now, here's the big idea that I want you to think about. This is the first area that's crying out for us to take a step to fight against the enemy that's bent on your destruction. Just like Jonathan's fighting against the enemy bent on their destruction, we need to take a step to stand up to fight the enemy that's bent on our destruction. Because make no mistake, there is an enemy that wants to steal from you and kill you and destroy you. And he's already decided. I know, we want to say, hey, maybe, maybe if we just stay quiet. Maybe if I just stand still and I don't really cause a fuss. I don't cause a ruckus. If I just stay here and be quiet, maybe the enemy won't notice me. They won't notice my family. Shh, quiet kids. Stop making noise. We think maybe it'll pass us by. Listen to me. That's not going to happen. He's already determined. He wants you destroyed. He wants to steal from you. He wants to kill you. He wants to take from you. But Jesus came so that you could have life and have it to the full. I don't want us to just sit back and just be reactive to everything. All right, if I can't just sit still, then I'm just going to be scared and nervous and worried about what might happen and what might come and be fearful. And then something terrible comes, and now I've got to drop to my knees and say, oh, God, help us. We need you so desperately. When instead we could have lived proactively and we could have started some kind of a battle plan. We could have taken one small step and said, you know what? I'm going to make every morning, I'm going to take the time to pray. I'm going to actually discipline myself this time. I'm actually going to pray every morning. I'm actually going to study the scriptures every morning. It doesn't have to be forever, just for a little while. Or I'm actually going to bring a lifestyle of fasting into my life. I'm going to make this a part of who I am. I'm actually going to take the time to spend time with my kids. I'm actually going to go ahead and I'm going to date my wife every single week. <laughs> Ladies, that was your opportunity. I don't know. I don't know what you're waiting for. I would have applauded that one. Do you see what I'm saying? Take a step forward. Don't wait. Don't lay back. Don't be lazy. Don't just let everything come to you and hope that it never does because he's being proactive trying to get to you. Let's go on to the next one. Hoo-hoo. You okay? <laughs> okay. You sure? Okay. Uh, Esther. Let's go to Esther. Esther chapter 4. I love this story too. It's one of my favorites. 
Esther chapter 4. Now, Esther, uh, we don't have a ton of time for the context, but as briefly as I can, Esther, has she's a Jew, and she's kind of risen, and she's become, in essence, the, the queen of Persia. And so she's uncovered the story through her cousin, Mordecai, who has discovered this evil man, Haman, who wants to wipe them out, wipe out the Jews because of Mordecai, really, and his insistence to stand up rather than bow down to Haman. It infuriated him so much that he wanted to wipe out Mordecai and wipe out all the Jews in the area. And so he creates a plan, has the king sign it to get rid of all of them. So Mordecai, let's see here, let's talk in verse uh, 6 of Esther 4. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman, he's a bad guy, had, prom had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back, reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, who was her cousin who'd raised her, he sent back this answer. Hey, don't think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will rise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? Here it is. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. But who knows? that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Once again, she said, I don't know what the outcome is. I don't know what's going to happen. It feels unsafe. I could be killed. I'm risking everything for this, but I will go. Gather the community. Gather the family. Pray for me. I'm going to pray. Let's pray together. Let's fast. Let's seek God. And then I will take my one step. I'll enter the king's palace, and we'll see what happens. Now, as you read the story, and many of you are already familiar with it, he accepts her. The plan eventually is uncovered, and the Jews are delivered. It's an incredible, incredible thing that happens. Why did it happen? Because she was brave enough to take one step in unknown territory to see what would happen. Number two, second area that's crying out for a step is to rescue the people that are headed to certain death. These are the people that surround you. These are the people who don't know Jesus. These are the people who are unfamiliar with how much God loves them. These are the ones with whom we are wanting to have conversations and continue them. 
they are headed for certain death without a knowledge of Jesus that saves them and accepting his work on the cross for them and his forgiveness without turning to him in repentance. They're headed for certain death and we can be the ones to rescue them. We can sit quietly. We can take the step. Risk the embarrassment. Risk the ridicule to open up the conversation. Now remember this. I think this is really important. Remember that Esther, it wasn't her responsibility. Esther wasn't the rescuer. The outcome didn't totally belong to her. She wasn't the rescuer. The king was, and ultimately God was in his sovereignty. But Esther was the one who had to take the first step to see it happen. This is what we're called to do. This is what Jesus is asking us to do when he says to go and make disciples. But Brent, I'm so nervous. I'm so scared. I know. Everybody deals with it. We take the first step, and then we have faith and trust, knowing that all the time God is right there with us, and there's a community of faith of people who love you and who are praying for you and who you can come back and share your failures with and share your successes with and get wisdom from and dialogue with and keep having the conversations because there are people in our lives that need rescue. Finally, Daniel chapter 3. Oh man, this is my favorite one. It's a little too lengthy for me to read the entire passage, so we'll just kind of sum it up. But most of you are familiar with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, these three guys. And here they are. They find themselves in this region. And the king has said, listen, when the music plays, everyone is to bow to this idol that I have set up. And these three guys, as the music plays, they just stand there. <laughs> I love the picture of it. Music plays, everybody bows down. You can picture three dudes. Yeah, sorry, not gonna do it. Men made him. I'm not gonna bow to him. I bow to somebody else. So of course they get called in, and the king has been kind of somewhat duped into writing down that. Anyone who does not do this is going to be killed. So the guys bring them in, take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They present them before the king and said, these guys wouldn't bow. Tattletales, these guys won't bow. And so they're going to have to be thrown into the fiery furnace. So hot, so hot that even the soldiers who bound them to take them, to put them in, died on the way. But these three guys, they stand before the king, and here's what they say. This is their moment. They say, hey, listen, God is able to rescue us, and he will save us from your hand, O king. (laughs) But this is my favorite. And they say, but even if he doesn't, what a great statement of faith. Our God is able and he will save us. But even if he doesn't, we're still going to serve him and him alone. That's how much we believe. That's how much we trust him. And so that's what they do. So they take them because they didn't bow. They take them, they throw them in. And they're, they're in the fire furnace. And apparently everybody's watching. It's a very gruesome scene. Everybody's watching. And there's three guys walking around unbound with a fourth man who's now appeared. And the king looks inside and says, wait a minute, hey, fellas, how many guys do we throw in there? 
Because I, I thought it was three. I thought it was three. Anybody else fall in? Anybody seen Jimmy? Anybody seen Jimmy? J- yeah, Jimmy's over there. Jimmy didn't fall in. He's the one that usually tries to fall in. Jimmy didn't fall in. So, so who's the fourth guy? Because he looks like the son of man. God joined them there. And what I want you to realize is this. God was closest to those three boys when the hardship seemed like it was the worst. That's when he was the most apparent. So the third area, the third area that's crying out for us, one chapel to take a step, and we'll close with this, is that we stand up for Jesus in a culture that worships almost anything else. There's so many things to worship, so many things to give our time and attention to, so many things that we knowingly or unknowingly bow down to and give our lives to. When it's time for us as a body, together, individually and corporately, to stand strong for Jesus in a culture that's bowing to everything else. When the people at work say, hey man, we're going to go do this on Friday night. You coming? Eh, no, I'm okay. All right, I, I'm not going to do that. Why not? Well, it just goes all kinds of crazy sometimes for me. So... I'm going to go home and might spend a little time with Jesus. I'm I'm sorry, what? (laughs) See, when I say that, some of you are like, I could never say that. How embarrassing would that be? This is the point. (laughs) And you don't have to say those words. You don't have to do that thing. But what is it that you can do? What is the one step that you could take? That's one illustration, that's one idea from a youth pastor who doesn't have a great deal of experience doing exactly that. <laughs> what, could it, what could you do? What could the Spirit of God call you to do? What's the one step that you could take to stand up for Jesus this week and see what he might do? Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? And right now, I want to ask you, would you just take a moment and would you pray? And this is the thing I want you to ask. God, what could I do? What areas of my life are you calling me to take one small step? (laughs) Maybe for some of you, he's going to ask you to take a big step. Great. Maybe for others of you, it's just one step in one area. Maybe for you, it's a step in all three of the areas to fight against the enemy that's bent on your destruction, to rescue the people that are headed to certain death, or to stand up for Jesus in a culture that worships everything else. What's the one step that I could take to see you work? Because that's what I want. Unless you think today that I'm proposing that we do this under our own power, under our own strength, and under our own authority. It needs to be made clear that the only reason we can take a first small step is because the fact is God already took all the first steps. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21 It talks about how the Lamb of God was slain before the foundations of the world. 
the plan was already in place to rescue you and to rescue this world from sin. He took the first step before any of us were here. Romans 5.8, Christ showed his own love for us in this, or God showed his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we knew him, he gave his life. He took the first step before you even believed. Matthew 28, 16 through 20, we know it is the Great Commission to go and make disciples. But at the beginning of it, he says, I have all the authority in heaven and on earth. Because I have that, go and make disciples. And guess what? I'm going to be with you always to the very end of the age. He took the first step as you make disciples. As you have conversations. John 14, 15 through 17. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to be with us. And to live in us. The advocate, the counselor to help us. Yes, direction does require movement. And that means you have to take a step. But God took all the first ones. So that you can take one small one. And see him work. And you don't do it alone. You do it with a family who believes in you and supports you. So Spirit of God, what do you want us to do? What are you saying to us today? Where can we go? What can we do? Would you be specific with us in this moment to tell us how we can take a step this week, this month, this year and continue to work towards what you want us to do and be who you've called us to be. You know, this morning is a part of that. Some of you, you may be sensing that the step you need to take is the step that comes back into a right relationship with Jesus because you've been out, you've been away. You stepped aside, as it were, or you've stepped back, as it were. And this morning, you need to take a step towards. And he's calling you, and you know it. Others of you, you, you may have never taken a step towards Jesus and his great love for you. You've never chosen to believe that he died on a cross and shed his blood and gave his body so that you could be free and healed and clean while you live here on the earth and that you could spend an eternity with him. So we call the gospel, the good news. Today, maybe you need to take a step towards him and believe that. Right now, would you take a moment and do it? And just say a prayer in your heart. As I pray now, would you pray in your own heart and make the commitments that you need to make to say yes to what he's calling you to do? Heavenly Father, would you help us now? And those things that you're speaking to us, Holy Spirit, I pray for great courage and great strength and great endurance as difficulties come and as trials rise and as we have some hardship as we walk forward. Would you help us? Would you help us to stand up for our families? Would you help us to rescue the people that are bent on destruction? Would you help us, God, today you help us to stand up for you and not bow down to anything else but help us 
And now we make a commitment together to take the step towards you, to believe in you, to believe in your life, to believe that you died, you were buried, you rose again so we could be free. And our step today is to say, I'm giving you my life. I'm going to turn away from the life I lived, and I'm going to live a life for you instead. Forgive me and wash me. Now help me. And I thank you for doing it in Jesus' name. Amen.